In this series, Project 938, the challenge of this entire series is to commit to daily ask God to send out laborers into the harvest. And the goal through this series, and really the goal for our entire life, is to know and to do God's will. So it's more than just a head knowledge, because there's lots of things that I know that I should do that I don't do. I know I'm supposed to eat more vegetables, but I know we're supposed to exercise, but we have a hard time doing it. We know lots of things in our head and what we're supposed to do, but we want to go beyond the knowing and into the doing. And that's where our faith promise comes in, living by faith, because knowing and doing God's will always requires faith on our part. God's plan for worldwide evangelism is not complex. It's really quite simple. We accept Christ as our Savior and we go and tell people about the good news of the gospel. We often overanalyze it and we begin to think through all the things that we can't do and we focus on the long list of things that we can't do and we fail to recognize what we actually can do. We fail to recognize what God can do in our life because we spend all the time listing off the things, well, God, I can't do this and can't do that and can't do this. And we fail to recognize that God says, that's okay, I created you, I know what you can't do, and also let me remind you what you can do. And that's really a foundation for praying the Lord of the harvest for our own lives. God, what do you want me to do? Because I know what I can't do, but you're going to have to take what I can do and make it for you. And through this series, we're challenging you to pray. And one of the joys about praying is, first of all, we get to talk to the creator of the universe, which I'd never want to get over that. I always want to be in constant awe of the fact that the creator of the universe allows me to speak to him. But also with that, the purpose of prayer is not to change the mind of God, is really to change our hearts and align our hearts with the things of God. And then we see powerful things happen. And through this series, we're asking four questions. Four questions to ask when praying God's will. Last week, we began with the foundation. Is what we're praying biblical? Are we praying biblically? Are we praying your will to be done? Or is it God's will? And then this morning, we're talking about, is it personal? Because it's so easy to sit back and know exactly what other people are supposed to do and how God could possibly work in other people's lives. And we fail to recognize that it actually has to become personal. And then in the following weeks, we'll look at making it practical. And finally, it's sacrificial, something that costs us something. Our principle for today is this. I must... And this is a definitive, I must take knowing and doing God's will personally. In order for it to make a real impact, we have to take it personally. Matthew chapter number nine, give you a quick foundation. It's in the middle of Jesus' ministry. It's three and a half years here on earth. A time where he was incredibly popular. The multitudes are following behind him. He's preaching the gospel. His disciples are there with them. They're witnessing miracles taking place. And Jesus is 
preaching and healing people and his popularity is growing and growing. And Jesus comes along with his disciples and gives them a reality check. The way I, I see these disciples as they're a motley crew of a variety of backgrounds. None of them are particularly special in, the, in and of themselves, but God's going to do some incredible things through them. And they've come along, and now they're part of Jesus' inner circle, and they're thinking to themselves, aren't we something special? We get to not only witness these miracles, we get to sleep next to Jesus and hear his, his parables firsthand. We get to be at the front of the, all of the crowds all the time. We must be pretty special. And Jesus comes along and gives them a perspective change. And he begins to change their perspective in Matthew chapter number 9, verses 35 through 38. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you, follow along in your Bibles. There's some things I want you to see here. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. That right there is an incredible amount of life change. In that one verse, verse 35, tens of thousands of people's lives are being changed by Jesus Christ, and now they're following him. And what did Jesus do? Verse 36 when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, and here's the reality check. Here's the change of perspective for his disciples. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. To give you a little background there, with that word of, of verse number 38, it has the, the, the word pray, which literally means to beg God. So it's a prayer of desperation. And that's the attitude that Jesus tells his disciples. So he says, pray earnestly, beg God in desperation that he will send out people because there's absolutely no hope other than Jesus Christ. And this is the prayer of God. If you don't do something here, we don't know what we're going to do. This week in our own church family, we had a, a person in our church who wouldn't mind me sharing this, and I won't share any specific details. They, they were taken to the hospital with some unknowns, and they had to do some scans, and they had to wait hours to hear the results of the scans. And during that time, they asked for prayer. I was thinking, God... You're going to have to do something miraculous here. The prognosis at the time and because of history was not good. And we spent time in prayer saying, God, will you protect and will you heal? And then later on the, in the evening, the doctor came in after being in surgery and looked at the scans and everything, thankfully, was OK. But there was a time there we go, God, if you don't do something here, we're going to be in desperate situation. You're going to have to work here. And thank God, I believe that he did. And it, for me, was one of these reminders of the, what does it feel like to be in desperation? God, you're going to have to change lives here. So when Jesus looks across in the multitudes of people, he doesn't say, eh, take it or leave it. It doesn't really matter. He's saying, you need to pray in desperation. If God doesn't change their lives, if God doesn't save them from their sins, if people don't share the gospel, if people are not sent, if people do not go, 
we have no hope. Our principle again is this. I must. Let's put some desperation behind that. I must take knowing and doing God's will personally. It's the total opposite of our normal society, of how the normal world lives. In Romans chapter number 12, verse number 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern, or as in know, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You will not find the will of God in our normal society. You will not find it in yourself. If you just look deep into yourself, you will not find the will of God. We have to have, it says there, the transforming and the renewing of our mind. We have to go back to what the Bible says and from that make it personal in our lives to make the real change. So we have three points this morning. I must personalize And we see three C's, the crowd, the calling, and finally, the cost. And we're going to find that in these verses here, verses 36 and verse 38 of Matthew chapter number 9. And we're going to see how we can make this personal. First of all, make the personal the crowd. You ever been in a, a large crowd? Now, I will publicly say I am not a Fremantle Dockers fan. For Father's Day, my dad and I went to the Fremantle Dockers game. I got one of the last 10 tickets for sale. It was literally some of the worst seats in the entire stadium, right up the top near the big screens. But we were there with 58,987 of our closest friends. And you look across the sea of purple, and granted, there was a sprinkling of red and blues there for the Bulldogs fans. And if you're not a football fan, there was a finals game last night. So it was a big deal. And these players were playing in desperation. And the Dockers almost, almost made me happy, but they ended up winning. And sitting there and watching the crowd, and you see the sea of faces. And at the end of the game, when the siren goes, you make your way down the escalator all the way down. And we were at level five because that's the, the seats that I'm willing to pay for. You go all the way down and then you walk along and get on the train and you stand next to a bunch of strangers. And of course, being on the train, you have to have masks. So you have a bunch of eyeballs looking at you and you have a crowd of a whole bunch of strangers and people and you don't know any of their names. They can just be the crowd. And one of them could just disappear and no one would ever notice. A hundred of them could just disappear and no one would ever notice. When Jesus says when he saw the crowd, it caused him to do something. That next line, it's underlined on the screen. It says he had compassion. I did a little bit of research on that phrase. He had compassion. The had compassion is a word that is actually a phrase. It's not two separate words. Other Bibles translate it, he, he was moved with compassion. And I did some study on that particular word that's translated had or moved with compassion. It's, it's translated with the word compassion 12 times in the New Testament. And every single time it has to do with Jesus. We never see 
Peter was moved with compassion or any of the other disciples had that same sort of compassion. But when Jesus told a story about compassion or when Jesus was teaching and seeing people, it says there it had a active. He saw the crowds and he was. Yeah, they don't really matter. It's just a sea of faces. It doesn't matter if some of them disappear or, or some of them go. He says he saw them and it made something happen inside of him. If you study that word out, that move, he had compassion. It is deeper than just he felt something. It actually has the understanding that it was from his, and the Bible uses in, in the Hebrew the word reins, which literally means the guts. And in that culture, the seat of emotion was your guts. And if you've ever really been nervous, you know where your seat of emotion is. Your heart may beat, but you have this sick feeling in your stomach or this, this movement in your stomach. Is that Jesus, when he saw the crowds, the seat of his emotion was stirred. It wasn't like, yeah, I saw the crowds. It's no big deal. There'll be another one tomorrow. He says, I saw the crowds and it caused something inside of him to move. And that movement was compassion. And it changed the way that he looked and he was teaching his disciples, don't just see the sea of faces and go, that's nice. Start to individualize them. Start to know their stories behind every single face. And as I sat in the crowd of 59,000 Every single person had a story. Every single person is known by Jesus Christ. He knows us intimately. And when he would stand before the crowds, he says, I don't stand before the crowds and go, that's nice. He says, it's caused a movement, something stirring up inside of me. Every single person had a unique story. Every single person had a unique purpose. And the way that Jesus responded was with a personal compassion. I don't believe it's possible, as I was thinking through the word compassion, to have compassion and not make it personal. So when you see the crowds of people and you, you think of the world, and it's easy to look at the globe and you hear statistics about numbers like there are almost 8 billion people here on earth. And it's an insurmountable number that we really can't fully comprehend. And to know that when Jesus sees them, he is moved with compassion and it's a personal individual compassion for every single person. That same word of that move with compassion. It lines up with action. When Jesus told the account in, in the book of Luke, uh, Luke chapter number 10, and he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he tells that parable, and you see the different people walk past the, the, the man who was beaten and laying there on the side of the road, and they looked at him and go, oh, there's someone sitting on the side of the road. But there was no movement inside of them. And they saw the person laying there and they walked on the other side of the road and kept moving. They had a head knowledge of the need. Not one person that passed by after the Good Samaritan story, uh, a person was beaten and lying there almost dying on the side of the road could, could say, hmm, I didn't see them. They all saw them. 
They all recognized that person was in need, but it had to go beyond the head knowledge and actually a movement of compassion. Jesus uses that specific word when in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that, that Samaritan is walking along and he sees that man beaten on the side of the road and the, exactly the same word is used. He was moved with compassion, which caused an action. And it rhymes, so it must be extra good. So his compassion was moved him to action. And that's what each and every one of us, I believe, are called to do. When we see the crowds and we think of the world, we cannot comprehend 8 billion people individually. But you can comprehend your family. You can comprehend your neighbors. You can begin to think of the people in your sphere of influence at school or at work. You can begin to think outside as God grows and develops your compassion and your care for others. And it leads you to more action. You can begin to gr grasp more and more. And your heart aligns with the things of God again and again. The opposite of that compassion is we become cold. We become callous. We can even become cruel. You think of the opposite, that story of the Good Samaritan. The people that walked past on the other side of the road saw the need, and they were cruel, they were callous, and they were cold. And if it was, if it was one or the other, I believe every single one of us would say, we want someone to respond to us with compassion. Let's do the same for others. There is a bumper sticker that I saw this week that caused me to Google. Like, what's the origin of this bumper sticker? And there's a bumper sticker that says, justify your existence. Now, forgive me if you have this bumper sticker, but I'm going to be strong right now. Take it off your car, because it's not a good bumper sticker. Let me tell you about the origins of it. There's a man named George Bernard Shaw. And George Bernard Shaw lived 100 years ago, and 90 years ago, he was a, a great orator. He was a, a novelist. In fact, he was, it was a Nobel Prize winning in literature. And in uh, March 5th, 1931, and there was a little video on YouTube if you Google it. It was really crackly. So I decided just I'm going to quote it to you and read it to you. This is not a man that you should emulate at all. He was a socialist or a communist, and that changed the way that he viewed the world, changed the way that he viewed individuals. And as a result of that, he came up with a proposal that I believe was a bit satirical, but foundationally true and of his heart. This is not something you should emulate. So I'm quoting it in church. Do not emulate this, okay? Let me read for you. And imagine I have a tremendous, deep British accent. I object to all punishment whatsoever. I don't want to punish anybody. But there are an extraordinary number of people who I want to kill. Not in an unkind or personal spirit, but it must be evident to all of you, you must know half a dozen people at least who are no use in this world, who are more trouble than they are worth. I think it would be more good to make everybody come before an appointed board just as he might come before the income tax commissioners and say every five years or every seven years, just put them there 
and say, Sir or Madam, now will you be kind enough to justify your existence? If you can't justify your existence, if you're not pulling your weight in the social boat, if you're not producing as much as you consume, or perhaps a little more, then clearly we cannot use the big organization of our society for the purpose of keeping you alive. Because your life does not benefit us. And it can't be of very much use to yourself. And to be honest with you, when I first saw the justify your existence bumper sticker, I thought, yeah, that person needs to justify their existence. Until I realized what it's really speaking of. Uh, basically saying, if I don't think you're valuable, we should go ahead and kill you. Jesus saw the crowds, and he didn't look at the crowds and say, justify your existence. He didn't say, are you good enough for me to come to earth to save you from your sins? He said, I am moved with compassion. So therefore, the God of the Bible sent his son Jesus, and he knows every single one of your failures. He knows your deepest, darkest secret, and he doesn't say to you, justify your existence or we'll kill you. He says, I move with compassion. It's going to take me to the cross. It's going to change the world. It's going to save you from your sins. It's going to give you life when you had no hope. And it's going to give you eternity when you deserved hell. And what do we find in the Bible? We see that God was moved with compassion. When we hear of, the, of what takes place in the world, it moves us with compassion. The second point is the calling. We must personalize the crowd. We must personalize the calling. That verse in verse number 38, remember we said there's a compassion leads to action. And here's the action behind God's calling. And this is something we've talked about many times in our church family. So we're not going to go too deep into this today. But I would be remiss of me if I did not mention this because this is foundational to our compassion. It's our calling, the action behind it. It says in verse number 38, therefore pray earnestly. Remember, beg God. To the Lord of the harvest, here's the words, send out laborers into his harvest. To be called or to be sent out by God and for God. That's why we have these prayer guides that are in your bulletins. These are just reminders to help you remember and, and help us pray systematically and logically. There are some QR codes that you can scan that will give you some information about some different regions of the world. The purpose behind them is to put some action behind our compassion because it's very well and good, and I do the same thing often. Is I sit in church and go, I need to do something about that. And then we leave and we forget the action behind our movement of compassion. We see a video, we hear a story, or God touches us through a song and we go, I need to make an action behind my compassion. And then we leave from the doors and we go, what was that about again? And we so quickly forget. That's why we have these prayer guides to help you remember. Jesus, when he was sending out his disciples, he says in John chapter number 20, verse 21 and 22, Jesus said to them again, 
Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. It's an action. It's something that is continuing on. It's not a once-off. It's it's a continuation. I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So we have a calling action that is equipped by the Holy Spirit. That's the action behind that, and that's why we ask you to pray about what does God want you to do in regards to faith promise missions over the next 12 months. When Jesus sent out his disciples and when Jesus sends us out, he doesn't send us out by ourselves. He says, I'm going to send you out with the Holy Spirit. That's why when I challenge you to pray, God, what part do you want me to take in world missions over the next 12 months? We want this to be a Holy Spirit guided decision. In your bulletin, also on the welcome table, you have these cards that are the Faith Promise Commitment cards. There's nowhere on here for your name. It's really to help us plan and budget and to prayerfully work, move forward in the next 12 months as, as a church family. But it's also an area here that you can break off or cut off and keep it for yourself. And I keep mine personally in my Bible. And there's an area there for a financial amount. But there's also an area there that I believe that every single person can mark. And that part is, it says, I will pray for our mission outreach. In other words, it's a commitment beyond just the next month, but it's an ongoing commitment of, of I'm going to pray. We see in Ephesians chapter number 2, verses 8 and 9. Let me read those verses for you. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. And it goes on, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what we see here is we have been saved by God. In in verse number 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. We've been saved by God. And every single one of you has a unique story. And if you have placed your trust upon Christ as your Savior, you've been saved by the same Jesus and saved by the same sacrifice of Jesus and saved in the same way, but your story is unique and how you've got there. And every single one of our stories is unique. We've been saved by God. And if we've been saved by God, I believe we all have been sent by God. He has saved us with and for a purpose. And that's our second point there. It says, sent by God. And in verse number 10, it says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. We were created with a purpose. So we've been sent out. You may think to yourself, well, I haven't been called to go to a foreign country. And I, I hope that people from our church will be sent from our church to a foreign country. Every single one of us has been sent. You've been saved by God uniquely, and you've been uniquely sent by God. He's placed you in your workplace and placed you in your school. He's given you your finances and opportunities. You don't just accidentally bump into various people along the way. He's given you opportunity to share the gospel. And he's given people individual burdens for various areas and, and, and ministries. And when we look at that, we think to ourselves, remember I said earlier, we list off all the things that we can't do. And we begin telling God all the things that we can't do. And we forget all the things that God has blessed us with and resourced us with. And he's also given us his opportunities. We also, if we've been saved by God and we've been sent by God, we're also trusting to be sustained by God. And in verse number 10 
of Ephesians 2. This is where the Holy Spirit is active and working in our lives. It says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, and what does it say there? That we should walk in them. And when you think of the word walk, you think of, maybe you think of a pathway. And on a pathway, in order to follow a pathway correctly, you have to focus on what the pathway is. You don't just look around. You could end up anywhere. You must focus on the pathway. And here it says that we should walk in them. And in, to follow the pathway, it, it requires us to trust the path. It requires us to focus on the path and to find our direction. There are people across the world that are calling out and crying out, will you pray with us? Will you send helpers? Will you send people to start churches? Will you send people to share the gospel? Much like this Pastor Sammy in Kenya. I am Pastor Sami Kinyanjui. We have had missionaries in Kenya for many years. Many have come to, to Christ and churches have been started because of their effort. However, there are so many places in Africa that need missionaries. Please pray and ask God to send more missionaries in Africa so that we can reach the unreached areas. Here you have a man who's a pastor who's asking, will you pray? Now, I know it's a video, but imagine he was here. If he was here and asking you as an individual, how would you respond? And as we look at these, we must personalize the crowd. We must personalize the calling that we've been given. But it's also, we must personalize the cost and accept the cost. That passage continues on in verse number 38, and it says, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When you hear the word laborers, you don't think lazy and do nothing. It lines up with work. It's going to require work. And when you look at something, and maybe you shop in this way, when you shop, you don't look at what the price is. You look at how much you've saved. And when you explain what you've purchased, because my wife is really good at this, and she will readily admit this because she does it all the time. She won't tell me how much she spent. She goes, it was on sale. I said, I didn't ask how much it was. I didn't ask if it was on sale. I said, how much was it? But I saved this much. And you see, the cost of something is really relative. And the word cheap is really relative. If y'all was to, to get a brand new ute and bring it in and say, it's only $10,000, you would say, let me buy it right now. I'll, I'll happily pay $10,000. I will go scrounge it around. I know I don't have it, but $10,000 for that $90,000 ute, that's a bargain. I will happily buy that. And I would happily buy it if you want to offer it. On the other side is that if you took some little cheap lolly and said it's $10,000, you'll go, there's no way I'm paying $10,000 for that until you're starving. And it's all relative of how much you're willing to pay and the value of something is based upon perception. It's all relative. It's all what we're willing to pay. It's a perception of cost is really based upon its value. And if we compare our lives to cars or to lollies or to clothes or various other things, we may be cheap or expensive depending on how you view things. But 
when you really break it down and make it personal, the cost that Jesus paid for your sins cost him his life. He, he left the beauty of heaven and came and lived a cruel life here on earth. And he's called out for you and I to pray that laborers will go, which requires work. And when you look at the work of, of your life and you recognize the value of your own soul and how much God paid for your salvation, and you look at others and say, how much is their salvation worth? And we've given an opportunity to financially support. We've been given opportunity to prayerfully support. We've given an opportunity to practically go out and support and help in missions opportunities. How much is a soul worth? There's a man named Laverne Rogers. In a moment, we're going to see a video from him. He was 95 years old. And they've been working on a documentary of his life for the last couple of years. They've been putting it together. And it's coming out this month. And Laverne Roger passed away two weeks ago. 95 years old. He was a missionary in Japan for 73 years. The last church that he helped start in Japan, he was 90 years old when he helped start the church. He was continuing active ministry. You're going to hear a phrase, is it worth it? He says, we would do it all over again. The Lord has blessed so much. Let's learn from a man who spent 73 years in Japan. I was in junior high school when Pearl Harbor happened. Hysteria and paranoia about the Japanese people grew in the U.S. after the Pearl Harbor attack in 1941. Newspapers repeatedly printed the wartime brutalities and cruel inhumanities of the Japanese troops. All the while, Laverne was wrestling with God as the turmoil of the war raged around him. I was in the Navy after struggling with God's call. I finally called out of my Navy bunk in San Diego and turned everything over to him. But I learned real quick in the Navy, when the CA says go, you go. No questions asked. In May 1950, a new courageous missionary couple were sailing into the port of Yokohama, Japan enemy territory after the deadliest war in human history. I think it would be no tribute to the Lord to say we would do it over again, other than just like he has blessed. He has blessed so much. I have no regrets, uh, just more of the same. As you look at a man who spent his life serving the Lord and you're looking at personalizing the crowd and personalizing the calling and also personalizing the cost, we must turn this back in our own lives. So as we go out today, you're going to have a choice. Maybe you were watching that video or you heard the, the, the gentleman, Pastor Sammy from Kenya, and you were moved with compassion, which needs to lead to an action. Let me challenge you. 
take that prayer guide and take that, that faith promise commitment card and spend some time in prayer. Pray that Lord of the Harvest will send out laborers. It's going to cost something. It's going to cost work. And our principle for today again is I must take knowing and doing God's will personally.